discussed any restrictions on gun ownership. BBC News. The news quiz is back on BBC Radio 4. William Dent was asked to explain after 50 years of research and having founded the Sleep Medicine Centre what he knew about why we sleep. The reason we need to sleep, he answered, is because we get sleepy. <laughs> Patients identified as drinking too much will be advised to not drink as much. <laughs> the news quiz chaired by me, Sandy Toxvig, Friday evenings at half past six and Saturday lunchtimes at half past twelve. And now on BBC Radio 4, the journalist and writer John Ronson continues his series with John Ronson on Brainstorming. Take boots off, just make yourself comfortable. I'm in Riga in Latvia in a media PR agency called Inspired. I'm in a room filled with beanbags and floor cushions with Carlos and Yanis, who are two of the creative directors here. So what do you use this room for? For the brainstorming, for coming up with ideas that are unusual, creative. Because you never know, actually, when you will come with an idea. We kind of thought that sitting behind a table, it wouldn't be too effective to come up with something creative, so... One day, a mobile phone company called Tele2 asked Carlos and Yanis to come up with a concept to advertise their new tariff. The only guideline was to somehow make it superhero-themed. The tariff was so affordable, it would make Latvians feel like they were superheroes. So Carlos and Yanis went into their brainstorming room. Tell me some of the ideas that you thought of and rejected along the way. One of the ideas was to freeze the puddles. If you take natural hydrogen, it can turn anything into coal instantly. So you were thinking about, like, freezing a huge area of not, central Riga? Not, not huge area, but selected puddles, right? Why was that one rejected? Because the implementation would be... Quite hard. Not only hard, but there could be a possibility to freeze ourselves. Well, yeah. <laughs> they also had an idea to have a man climb a building dressed as Superman, and when a crowd formed, he'd explain that he was not going to commit suicide. He just wanted to tell them all about a great new mobile phone tariff. But that idea was also rejected by the client. We had about two and a half months of 14 brainstorms. We had a huge amount of the ideas. Every idea was getting rejected by the client. Time was getting tight. It was the last day before going to the clients with the final ideas. And it was, what the hell? They do not like anything. OK, let's give them meteorite. A meteorite. In the superhero movie The Meteor Man, a schoolteacher from Baltimore gets superpowers when a meteorite lands on him. They would fake a meteorite landing in a field outside Riga. They would dig a giant hole in the middle of the night, set fire to the hole, get the media excited, and then announce to everyone that it was actually a stunt to raise awareness for Telly 2's new tariff. Telly 2 loved the concept. Yanis and Carlis set about obsessively planning. Well, I had a research for about two months. I read blogs and forums and news pages. My father is a scientist, so I have something from science too, and this was like a scientific experiment, how to make it into life. found a field a two-hour drive from Riga. 
They chose one far away so that the media, on hearing of the meteorite, would have to zoom over there in the middle of the night and they wouldn't have time to check the crater out too thoroughly before going on air. No one knew. None of my family knew. I said all the time that I need to work on the weekends, but actually we drove to find the places, etc., etc. When we dig the hole, we placed the cars far away. We walked about 10 minutes by foot, so there are no tracks left. No one sees us. We contacted with a man who makes special effects for movies in Latvia. We made a chemical compound that looks like lava. So what, you actually sprinkled unusual compounds in the crater? Poured in and then uh, put on fire, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You really thought this through. They had thought it through a lot. And each thought had been the result of a huge amount of group brainstorming. Maybe that was the problem. Brainstorming. Here's the author, Susan Kane. Well, the funny thing about brainstorming is that there's been 40 years, maybe more by now, of research on it. And what the research repeatedly shows is that it just doesn't work. I mean, it never works. Individuals who are brainstorming on their own almost always come up with more ideas and better ideas than groups of people brainstorming together. One crazy thing about it is that the people who have been involved in the brainstorming groups tend to think that the product of their brainstorm is much better than other people judge it to be. Because this is because in, in brainstorming situations, it's the most chatty and charismatic and self-assured ones, the ones who kind of talk the loudest and the ones who can just sort of say something really, really quickly, they're the ones who get heard, right? And Yes, and yet there is no correlation, right, between being assertive and having the best ideas about that particular brainstorm. I guess what you're saying makes complete sense because you don't come up with a great idea when you're being stared at. Right, right, right. It's like it's inherently inhibiting. I was in a brainstorming session recently and I thought, I'm going to actually time the silence that I'm about to take and just see how long it lasts while the other two are just sort of animatedly chatting away. 45 minutes, I didn't say a word. 45 And the other two didn't even notice because... Uh, you know, they were so excited about the things that they were saying. So if I told you that there's a room in Riga in Latvia, it's a brainstorming room with the cushions and you, know, you can throw the cushions if you're feeling so inspired to do so and so on. Um, <laughs> and all the creatives from this particular advertising company are all sitting in the room for quite a long time, I think like six weeks, brainstorming. I mean, obviously, they got to go home in the evening, but it was a big deal. You know, they came up with like hundreds and hundreds of ideas. Do you think, knowing what you know about brainstorming, this story is going to end well or badly? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to venture a guess, and I'm going to say badly. So it's a snowy, sleety... Latvian landscape. We are on our way to a small town called Masalata. So it's 150 kilometers up this way. Yeah, that's right. Straight ahead. Was this kind of what the weather was like when you were digging the crater? Yeah. You know, it was really hard to dig the hole. 
and they weren't uh, really uh, professional diggers. I mean, uh, <laughs> they haven't been holding shovel, I guess, for for, for a while <laughs> before that. Well, do you have soft media hands? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one marketing guy, one lawyer, one guy that makes special effects for movies, one guy who works as a mathematician, statistician, the guys like that. Uh, and were you thinking as you were digging, people are going to love this? You know, after you have digged that big hole, you think that there's no possibility that they won't love it. So they dug a hole in the middle of the night, set fire to it, and then one of them, pretending to be a passerby, called the fire station. A local fireman called Gint picked up the phone. Gint says that when he arrived there, uh, the smoke was rising from the very bottom of the crater. The impression was really, really big. It really felt cosmic. Carlos and Yanis, now back home in Riga, guessed that people would be impressed. But it went way beyond that. Gint thought it was about the most awesome thing he had ever seen. Surreal. Mystical. He was almost moved to tears. Then he realised that his fire engine was trapped in the mud. It wouldn't move. He called for backup. Another fire truck arrived. And that one got stuck in the mud as well. Two fire trucks got stuck at the crater and they had to call for another car to rescue the car. By now, every fire truck tasked with protecting that region of Latvia had arrived at the meteorite site. Someone tipped off the newspapers and the TV news 150 kilometres away in Riga. They leapt into their cars. Janis and Carlis thought that it was going brilliantly. So is this the field? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, here it is. How many journalists were traipsing across this field? <laughs> many. It's always a big story if a meteorite lands. And a big meteorite, as we made once in three or four hundred years, lands on the Earth. It had seemed like such a great idea in the brainstorming room. They wouldn't just give Latvia a meteorite landing, they'd give it one of history's most awesome meteorite landings. Here's a blogger called Christeps. The first time when I heard about it, it was when I read about it on Twitter. <laughs> it looked like there's something magnificent uh, had happened in Latvia. I called some of my friends. Okay, let's go and take a look. When we got there, we saw from far away some lights, some firemen. What was the atmosphere like where you were? It was great excitement, some feeling of uh, unknown. It was quite energizing. Was it emotional? Yes, yes, it was. The farmer who owned the land was a man named Harris, who wasn't in on the hoax at all. The site was full of journalists, uh, TV operators, satellite dishes even, Estonian TV. The fun was quite big, especially one person, one Russian, who came with a box of 12 uh, vodkas. Those without the labels. (laughs) Harris says it was a very emotional night. 
people were gathering in the village, getting drunk and crying, toasting the landing of the meteorite. All this happened not long after Latvia's economic crash. People had been having a really bad time, and finally there was something wonderful to celebrate. And standing at the hole now, I can understand why they felt that way. Gosh, you know, straight away you're thinking, seeing this, you're thinking this is a wonder of nature. You're thinking something miraculous has happened here. Yeah. That evening, here was a real celebration. People were taking pieces of lava, putting in their pockets, so it's like a souvenir from a real meteorite. And everyone was really celebrating, because before it was in Latvia, all the time crisis, everything is bad. And here's something completely extraordinary happening. The next morning, Latvia's most eminent astronomers and geologists began arriving at the site to take rock samples. Here's Harris, who owns the field. He said that there was a professor from university who could barely walk. He had to walk with a stick. There were Estonian scientists in good suits. The house you can see back there, there are two old ladies. Harry says that he hasn't seen them moving for more than two years. But even they came. It's a long way for them to walk. And then a rumour spread throughout the emergency services. They'd all been leaping into the crater to grab rocks, mementos of their incredible night. Board of the crater was filled with radiation. This is Gint, the fireman. As the first fireman who came to the site, they were asked to wash down. And until the army with the proper measuring instruments would come in to verify that they don't have or have problem. And their families were asked to bring in the fresh clothes so they would be able to change. And that lasted up to four o'clock in the night. All these firemen were sitting there and for all they knew they had radiation poisoning and they could have cancer. That was exactly what they were thinking at that time. And the moment when you don't know what's going to happen with you, that's the thing they remember clearly. And throughout all of this, Carlos and Yanis were standing to one side, wondering when the best time would be to jump out and announce, surprise, guess what? We did it. To advertise a new phone tariff. They decided the best time would be the next afternoon. They called a press conference. And what was the vibe in the room? Very, very, very tense. And you know, before anybody starts to talk officially, there's a certain silence in the room and tension was there, you could sense it. But uh, I never knew how, <laughs> how nasty the questions would be and how angry would they be. What was the angriest question you can remember? Was uncomfortable question was, what would happen if at that time when the firemen were here, what would happen with a house nearby if that would have caught fire? So that was, of course, uh, something that we, we kind of struggled to answer. When Carlos and Yanis had first imagined the meteorite, they worried that it wouldn't be realistic enough. But in fact, the stunt failed because it was just too good. It was so wonderful, it kind of broke everyone's hearts. Is Chris Steps, the blogger. So it's just like, okay, meteorite, okay, this is a lie, 
and nothing, and some new tariff plan or something like that. It's all based on lies, so it's like, okay, we have this, this and this, and then just lie. And when I thought about those policemen and firemen who were forced to go there, so their time and resources were wasted, I was really angry. So it was like kind of hollow and empty, like a big crater. Yes, you can compare. The next day, there shows up an article in the biggest newspaper in Latvia, a woman saying that I don't understand what kind of mother brings up such people, and she was my mother. Saying what, what, <laughs> what terrible mother would raise a child who would pull a stunt like this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's something really sad about this. Yanis's father was a scientist, and Yanis said the idea was his own way of doing something scientific. He thought it would make them proud of him. But in fact, his mother was just kind of ashamed. There's been something nagging at me during my two days in Latvia. I don't know why Yanis and Carlos are so happy to help out with this story. It makes them look terrible. In the end, they had to pay the dry cleaning bills of the journalists who'd got muddy in the field. And worse, they were nearly prosecuted. In fact, Latvian law was changed in the aftermath to ensure that anyone trying a similar hoax involving the emergency services would be committing a crime. But they love that I'm here. They're enthusiastically introducing me to their victims and even acting as translators. At the end of our last day in Latvia, I asked them what their PR peer group thought of the whole fiasco. Jealous. We won several awards. The list is quite big. We won two major local awards. We won award also in Kiev. For me, it's a bit of a kind of surprising ending because the whole thing kind of spiralled out of control and you won loads of awards. Well, yeah, because when they launched the product two weeks after the meteorite, it's a rare event for a telecom operator that they ran out of SIM cards. And that's the reason why still, if you learn social sciences in Latvia, there will be one of the lectures where you will try to understand the meteorite case. So it's become like marketing history. Yeah, it's already in the books. Janis and Carlis. It's strange to think that brainstorming didn't exist as a concept before the 1940s. It was all the idea of an ad man called Alex Osborne. Here's the author, Susan Kane. He was a kind of charismatic, larger-than-life figure, you know, sort of a mesmerizing type of person who came up with this idea and was able to get all of corporate America lined up behind him with excitement. He actually came to this idea because he had noticed that the people in his advertising agency were inhibited, that they had fear of producing ideas and having them be judged. And so he decided to come up with this technique of brainstorming where people come together in a room and there are all these rules that say, you know, thou shalt not judge the other. You know, this is a freewheeling environment. You can say anything you want and nobody's going to mind. And I think it works to some extent, but it can't really overcome human nature at the you end know, of the day. It never works. It never works. That thing that, you know, you won't be judged. You can come up with the stupidest thing and nobody, you know, <laughs> never works. You come up with the stupidest thing and, and people look at you pityingly. <laughs>
In 2005, Harley-Davidson decided, during a brainstorming session, to branch out into producing cake-decorating kits. It was a disaster. Motorbikes had nothing to do with cake decorations. Nobody was interested. The same with Cosmopolitan magazine's decision to branch into yoghurts. It was just a kind of weird grandiosity. But those disasters pale next to what happened during a Hooters restaurant brainstorming session in 2003. So what Hooters is known for then is you go into a restaurant, you have a cold beer, you have chicken wings and an attractive woman in a, I presume, a low-cut T-shirt or a tight T-shirt. Yeah, tight tank top and orange running shorts that are fairly short. So certainly the imagery is that of female sex appeal. This is Hooters chief marketing officer, Mike McNeil. And we are known because of the Hooters girls, an all-female wait staff, certainly attractive, vivacious, outgoing, all-American cheerleader type imagery that we project for them. We get a lot of notoriety because of the name. In the U.S., Hooters is a slang expression for a portion of the female anatomy. Hooters girls come in all shapes and sizes, but they are beautiful. Right. So one day your boss sat all the executives down in a conference room and said he had an idea. Mr. Brooks was a guy that liked to be called Mr. Brooks. And he was not a guy that you just directly disagreed with. So the game was always, how do you get them to do what you want them to do and make them think it's their idea? So we're sitting around the boardroom talking about this airline venture. Were you all kind of looking at each other? We're looking at each other saying, all right, who's going to tell the emperor that he's got no clothes on? And we go around the table and we talk about cash flow constraints and we talk about stress on the operating business. And we get all around the table and Mr. Brooks looks at all of us and goes, so what I hear all you saying is that y'all all think this is a really good idea. <laughs> and that was it. We were in the airline business. They called themselves Hooters Air and they flew to 17 destinations like Rockford, Illinois, and Gary, Indiana, and Columbus, Ohio. The crew were savvy pilots. They were professional. They wore ties and uniforms. So it so wasn't that, like the Hooters girls were, like, flying the plane? They weren't flying the plane. There was an orange and white paint job on the outside of the plane with the Hooters logo on it. And then on the inside, we actually, the Hooters girls, to meet FAA regulation, couldn't even sit in the jump seats. We had to ticket them as passengers on the aircraft and give up two revenue-producing seats to have the girls on there. The comic book artist Matt Melvin was once a passenger on a Hooters plane. He says he wants to make it clear that he didn't actively seek out Hooters Air. So you're not in any way a Hooters aficionado. Oh, no, I would not call myself a Hooters aficionado whatsoever. So you got to the airport. Tell me about the experience of flying Hooters. Obviously, the Hooters women were dressed as Hooters women. They were dressed exactly as you would expect a Hooters girls to dress. Little orange shorts and the revealing top, the whole shebang. Once we were at a stable altitude, they were able to get up and get on the microphone and they would help hand out food and serve beverages. They're not allowed to do anything on the plane aside from some weird trivia games and stuff that they give coupons and gift certificates to the winners for. Were there Hooters-related questions? 
I think a few of them were. As far as I can remember, the questions they asked that were a little too specific, the plane was just dead silent. No one <laughs> knew what the answer was. They would just ask questions. Who was the first Hooters girl? Where was the first Hooters located? If it was a longer flight, they might get into more sports-centric trivia questions, general knowledge, those kinds of things. Do you think some of the people on board really didn't want a Hooters trivia quiz to suddenly just sort of rise up around them and really uh, what they want to do is just kind of watch the movie or sleep? Yeah. I do suspect that there were probably people on there that simply took that flight because they plugged in Travelocity and this came up as the absolute cheapest fare that they could get and they're on that plane and they were like, oh my God, what have we booked ourselves on here? Yeah, I'm sure that that happened. Would the Hooters go then sort of serve Hooters food? No, uh, we never could figure out a way to uh, vent fryers at 30,000 feet, so we couldn't get chicken wings up there. So Hooters Airline couldn't even serve Hooters food? That's exactly right. This was a flawed concept. (laughs) Well, you're not going to get any disagreement from me on that. So was it a sad day or a happy day when Hooters Airline finally flew its last flight? I think we all realized that it was the best thing to do, and quite frankly... I think had Mr. Brooks gotten out of the business even a year earlier, it certainly would have been better financially for the company. And I think, quite frankly, it would have been better for him. One of the sad parts of this story is the last flight of Hooters Air flew in April of 2006, and Mr. Brooks died on July 15, 2006. And I do think, having spent a lot of time around him, I think the stress The financial pressure of that business as it was failing may have contributed to his passing. And what lessons have you learned from the airline days? We are really good at chicken wings and beer and hiring pretty girls to serve them in a fun environment. And we're really good at building restaurants and that's probably what we need to stick to. Mike McNeil. In open-plan offices across the world, group brainstorming sessions descend upon startled introverts like flash storms. When you're in a brainstorming session, do you suddenly feel the desperate urge to escape somewhere quiet, like a toilet cubicle, and just sit there? Do you see others grow increasingly effervescent and wonder why you feel so compelled to go home? It's actually a trait shared by introverts the world over. We feel this way because our brains are sensitive to overstimulation. Here's the author, Susan Kane. The essence of introversion really is that you feel that you're most alive and you're most energized when there's a little less stimulation coming at you. So you could go to a party and be having the most fantastic time, but after an hour you will have reached the limits of your stimulation. And I always assumed yeah. it was just me. I always assumed that, you know, it was something to do with like there not being enough meat in my diet or, or it was some kind of personal <laughs> some kind of personal weakness or something. And this happens to me all the time. I'll be sitting at a dinner party and I'm having a really good time and then I suddenly hit my wall and I look around and No one else seems to have hit their wall. Like, they all seem ready to go for, like, three more hours. And I think, how on earth is that possible? But ours is a world that excessively and misguidedly respects extroverts. We make them our bosses and our political leaders. School classrooms are increasingly designed to reflect this flawed environment. Children sit in pods facing each other and are rewarded for being outgoing. 
All this even though Gandhi and Rosa Parks and Steve Wozniak and J.K. Rowling and Eleanor Roosevelt all describe themselves as introverts, having their best ideas when solitary. Every terrible idea in this programme was made on the spur of the moment in a meeting room. If there's a moral, it's that sometimes we should just sit there and have a think. John Ronson on Brainstorming was presented by John Ronson and produced by Lucy Greenwell. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. And next week, John will be looking at being normal. In a moment, there's another chance to hear John Sessions perform a personal cabaret of specially chosen poetry and readings. Starting next Monday, BBC Radio 4 brings you daily tales of rural life. We need a good hudra to meet our friends, talk about life, hide weapons. Just keep an eye on your guest, son. With cons-